Hey, thanks squad. Joel said a case here and welcome to part two of two of my most recent apologetics AMA on the chat app discord. In this episode, I answer the questions. What was the main reason for the Genesis six punishment, i.e. the global flood? Is it true goodness if it's coerced or bribed? How do we as Christians gain ground against the gay lobby? And is it now time to push back? Should Christians reject all violence as Tolstoy recommended? If God is so loving, why does he send all unbelievers to hell? These are the questions that I answer in this episode. As always, I hope that this gives you some fodder for your own conversations with non-Christians. And you know what? If you yourself are a non-Christian and you're listening to this, I I talk about the gospel a lot in my answers, and I sincerely hope that you will be encouraged to seriously consider the claims of Jesus, who the Bible says he is, and the problem of your own sin and how Jesus solves it. I'm going to get into that in this episode, but if you want to reach out and talk more about this, you can contact me at my new email address, joel at thethink.institute. I had to think about that for a second. Anyway, welcome to this Apologetics AMA, and as always, I hope it makes you think. My name is Joel Sedeckes. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach Bible at a Christian high school in Chicago. Impacted by my students' questions, I set out on a journey that brought me first to seminary to study apologetics and philosophy of religion, and then into pastoral ministry. As a pastor, I saw firsthand the struggle of believers confronted with questions of life that at first seemed impossible to answer, and the powerful confidence that came when they saw how God's Word gives the answers and guidance they needed. I had a dream to spread that message and equip more followers of Jesus, so my family and I joined Crew and launched the Think Institute. Now, I'm on a mission to equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message by applying timeless biblical truths to current cultural challenges. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, learning how to interpret all of life through the lens of God's Word takes a lot of work, more than just one or two podcast episodes a week. If you have an interest in the intersection between the biblical worldview and biblical manhood and current events, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, consider joining our free online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook, Gab, and on Signal. There you can join hundreds of other Christ followers who are also on the same journey, and we trade apologetic stories and strategies, we discuss philosophy and theological questions. It's like a huge bull session around a bonfire in your backyard or at your favorite cigar lounge. So check out the Think Squad group on Facebook, Gab, and Signal. What was the main reason for God's punishment in Noah's story? What was the main reason for punishment in Noah's story? Um, let's go to Genesis 6 and find out. 
So when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. So they're corrupt. They're, they're corrupt and, and they're, uh, well, their flesh is really the, the word there. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth, both in those days and afterwards, when the Son of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and was deeply grieved. So, got multiple things going on here. Uh, one is a corruption of the bloodline. I believe, yes, this is debated. I believe that this is talking about intercourse between what we might call angelic beings, sons of God. Uh, not not son of God the way Jesus is the son of God, but divinely created beings, lowercase g gods, uh, and human women, and they are creating these gigantic Nephilim creatures. Uh, they're corrupting the bloodline that was going to bring the Messiah into the world, as prophesied in Genesis three fifteen. Um, I think that's why it's so important that Noah was blameless in his generations. According to Genesis 6, 9, meaning he had an uncorrupted bloodline. I think that's very important. Uh, he was one of the progenitors of the Messiah, one of the ancestors of the Messiah. Um, but, you know, it's not like everybody on earth was mixing their, their um, uh, was intermarrying with angelic beings. So what else was going on? Well, there was widespread human wickedness. The, the every, incl every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. And then people were living for 900 years as well. And yes, I am a literalist about that. I think people were living almost a, a millennium long. So, you, and they're all speaking one language because the Tower of Babel hasn't happened. Which, if you if you read on, I think it's Genesis 11, you find out that God scattered people, scattered the nations because of their evil and their capacity to do great evil because they all shared the same language. So imagine a planet in which the so-called gods are mingling with human beings, creating monsters. Every inclination of every human heart and mind is only evil all the time. And people are living, if they're not murdered, 900 years. Just And they're all speaking the same language. Just imagine. Think about how many evil dictators there have been in the last 900 years. Now imagine they all speak the same language and they're all still alive currently. It would just be, it would be a, a tyrannical nightmare. You think we're facing tyranny now. It'd be unbelievable. It'd be just hor horrific. So the world was filled with violence, evil, and there's one guy who's blameless in his generations, and he's got three sons, and they've got wives, and so God saves him. That's what I believe is going on. Excellent. Thank you so much for that, Joel. Uh, next question. Let's see here. Um, <clears throat> from Meta Bater. Um, question should question to Joel. I can't say it. I'm working. Would I would like to know Joel's view on something that's been concerning me lately? I'm seeing several priests overemphasizing doing good for the sake of going to heaven, mm. training people to follow a carrot on a stick. Um, 
I'm of a belief that you can bribe the worst person to do good mm -hmm. if the reward is great enough. Thus, in doing so, our brethren are robbed of the intrinsic motivation. Do you see? Do you also see this? And how does it make you feel? Um, you have to define goodness, though. That's the thing, because um, according to the Bible, all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Well, if that's what our righteousnesses are like, well, what are our what are our evil deeds like? So, biblically speaking, the Bible does not paint a great picture of the human capacity to do good. And if we know that it's good to, if that doing good is pleasing to God, then we all stand condemned by Romans eight, because it says the mindset on the flesh cannot please God. What is that saying? What's the mindset on the flesh? Well, there's only two possibilities in life. You've got the mindset on the flesh, or you've got the mindset on the spirit. Who's got their mindset on the spirit? Well, that's people that God um, saves, uh, regenerates is the theological word. But basically, if you've been born again, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, God remakes you. Then you can please God. Then you can actually do good. Outside of God's having regenerated a person, they aren't actually capable of doing true good. So in terms of intrinsic motivation, I don't even think that's a possibility. Now, does that mean that someone can't do something externally good like um, donate to a children's hospital, uh, cook a meal for someone on a meal train, even, um, you know, even great works of goodness? Yeah, absolutely. But here's the problem. Jesus speaks to that as well because Jesus talks at one point about the end of the age and the final judgment. And Jesus describes there's going to be two groups of people, one on his left, one on his right. And to those on his left, he's going to say, depart from me. And he's going to send them to eternal judgment. And here's the amazing thing is what they say to Jesus. They say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And they start listing all the great things that they've done. And Jesus goes, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So what Jesus is saying is you had the external works, but you did not have the relationship with me. You were not regenerated. And so you were not saved. So I've, this probably speaks to what you're talking about. Like you can bribe the worst person to do good. Sure. You can also threaten the worst person to do good and say, I'm going to electrically shock you every time you do something bad. But that does nothing to the human heart. Only Jesus Christ can change a human heart. And so if you're talking to priests, all well and good, Make, but what I would say is ask them what the gospel is, because according to the gospel, according to the Bible, it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By works of the law, no one will be justified. So... If you're talking to a priest that doesn't understand that, and if they're truly devout Catholics, they do not believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. So I would say, go to the Bible, see what the Bible says about how to be saved and how to have your heart changed. And if that's not something that you personally have experienced yet, um, I'd invite you to do that right now. Repent of your sins, trust in Jesus Christ, ask him to give you his Holy Spirit he will do that. The Bible is very clear. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, let's see here. Uh, we have 
By the way, we're taking voice uh, questions at any point. If you want to raise your hand, I can uh, bring you on up. Ellipsis, I've By got about. Way, sorry, I've go got ahead, about go nineteen minutes. Just so we know. Oh, you got nineteen minutes left, and then you gotta go. Yeah, I gotta go. Okay, no worries. You hear that guy? So get your question in soon. Uh, by the way, uh, Transmold, I literally just typed that. Like, I did not mean to offend, just so you know. Um, let, let's see here. Um, uh, I think this is, uh, we may, okay. So this might be a question from Patton. We may not agree on your answer, but I'm curious anyway. At what point does the faithful community stop getting pushed back by the gay community and instead stand our ground in faith? I guess what is that? look like i guess taking ground would be a good thing to talk about also yeah uh the number one way that the church gains ground is through evangelism and discipleship when jesus gave the great commission to his church in matthew 28 18 through 20 he gave them a a global mission that is literally all encompassing he said he said to do something to the nations. Well, yeah, and you got to think too, at the time that Jesus said that, 99.9% .9 of the nations were idolatrous, uh, polytheistic, and pantheistic pagans. And it's not an insult. That's what they were. That's the definition. They were not worshiping God. And yet Jesus says, he essentially tells them to conquer the nations. How? By discipling the nations. Well, how do you disciple? Without evangelism, there is no discipleship. Evangelism is when you tell someone the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for sinners, rose again, reigns from heaven, and that there is salvation in his name. Well, you evangelize, and then when someone believes it, you baptize them, or the church does, rather. You could, I suppose. That's another conversation. And then you disciple them, meaning you teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. That is how we take ground. Now, if you're talking organizationally, culturally, structurally, let's talk about the spheres of authority. In culture, there are spheres of authority. Everybody thinks you got to go right to the federal level and outlaw something that you don't like. Okay, great. If that's what God's called you to do, do it. But the fact is God himself has put structures in place, spheres of authority, and, and we can operate in these spheres of authority that God has given us, you might never become president. You might never be able to sign into law a law out, uh, outlawing um, sodomy. But what can you do? If you're a dad, you can disciple your children. And you can teach them the gospel. You can teach them God's word and the biblical worldview. If you are involved in a church, you can teach a class on, on scripture about biblical sexuality. Maybe become a pastor or an elder. Maybe talk to your pastor and say, this is something I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about how the gay lobby and the gay agenda, the LGBTQ movement is constantly gaining ground and it seems like the church is constantly losing cultural ground. Talk to your pastor about that. And, um, you know, maybe start a, a Bible study on, on biblical sexuality. And guess what? Invite gay neighbors to that. Invite uh, invite the community to come in and study biblical sexuality. And you might say, well, they'll never want to hear that. Well, guess what? I host AMAs on Discord and I think probably the majority of people, at least half that come aren't Christians and yet they want to hear some Christian talk. So you might be surprised. Um, now, if, if you're called to go into politics, uh, whether as an elected representative, 
That's wonderful. We have a Republican system of government, and I think you should pursue that if that's what God calls you to. Know that that system is designed to chew you up and spit you out and to get you to compromise at every level. So you're going to have to go in with the armor of God on, which we were supposed to have on anyway, according to Ephesians 6. But if God's called you to do that, I would say start locally. Uh, there's this doctrine called the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. It's a biblical doctrine. I've done a couple podcasts on it with a pastor named Matt Truhella. Um, but you could go, if you're interested in this, you could go to defytyrants.com, learn all about it, about how to act locally and pursue local politics. But there are options available to us. Um, there, there are things that we can do. And, but, but remember, our enemy, again, I'm going to go back to Ephesians 6 and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there. Our enemy is not our gay neighbors. It's not even the gay lobby or the gay uh, LGBT movement. Even the people at the head of it. And we know the, the people at the head of the head of the movement, they're not gay. They're not LGBT. They just, you know, you're uh, George Soros is of the world and people like that. Uh, they're not gay, but they, they, they like to push agendas that destabilize Western civilization. Hope that's not too controversial to say that. I don't think it is. But um, how do we gain, how do we gain ground against them? Well, remember that our enemy is not flesh and blood. It is the powers and principalities, the spiritual forces in in the heavenly places, the powers of darkness. Those are spiritual forces. How do you overcome spiritual forces? Revelation makes it clear. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Now we're right back to evangelism again. Faith in Jesus, evangelism, and discipleship. God's given us a sword. It's the word of God. Within our family, God's given us the rod to discipline our children. Within the church, God's given us the keys to excommunicate unrepentant sinners. At the state level, the state has the actual physical sword, uh, and the Bible says he doesn't bear that in vain, but most of us are not going to end up going into politics. So we work through the other spheres, and we work locally. Whatever opportunities God has given us, understanding that the number one thing that we want, we do not want our enemies to die and go to hell. We want them to be saved, to join our team that way, by repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ. So that's why we bring them the gospel. All right. Thank you so much. Perfect answer. Well, great answer. Uh, let me see if I, uh, I'm going to move to Transbull. Uh, Transbull has a question. Can you uh, come on up? I right clicked and invited you. I'd rather have you interact. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Uh, yes. So my question is, have you read the book uh, by Leo Tolstoy, The Kingdom of God is Within You? I have not. You recommend it? Probably should. Here, I I put the basically uh, he advocates for uh, based in, based on the Sermon on the Mount. He advocates for abolishing violence, even the defensive kind, and to give up uh, revenge. He rejects the interpretation of the Roman and medieval scholars who attempted to limit its scope. Um, it's basically all about nonviolence, and it was written um, in like the eighteen nineties, I think, uh, in Russia. So. Cool. Do you have a question or? No, my question was if you had read it, what you thought of it. Oh, got it. You haven't, so you probably should. Thanks for the recommendation. All right. So, what do you? What would you think, perhaps? What would you think of that reading, Joel? That the uh, that let's say Jesus teaches to abolish all um, all viol all violence. Well, it's certainly an argument that's been made by pacifists over the years, like, uh, you know, the Quakers come to mind. 
But, you know, even if you go back to the 1700s, the Quakers, um, uh, they would – well, they were – on paper, they were pacifists, but they, they would contribute to the common defense and things like that. And they would often do it by sort of being sneaky about it and they would say, you know, we're going to contribute funds to the, um, the, 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 the king for his use. Um, but it was understood that they were contributing for military defense. I'm going I'm talking pre-revolutionary times. You can read about that in the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. What what's what's my purpose in bringing them up? Uh the Quakers are some of the best-known pacifists out there and even they couldn't find a way to be consistently non uh to to be consistently withdrawn from any and all violence. And um you know, you may think of maybe more on a a personal level, a family level, um I know of a pastor who – a very famous pastor who literally said that if someone were to break into his house and wanted to kill his family, he would not fight back. He would not kill the person and because um, he didn't want to send the person to hell. I can understand that sentiment but scripture says that if you don't provide for the members of your own household, you're, you've rejected the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. And I, I have to think that one of the most basic ways we provide for our household is by defending their right to live. And so I would, I would actually push back against that pastor. And I would posit the idea that if you're not willing to defend your family through defensive violence in the face of death, I would, I think that that's evil and it's not an application of anything Jesus ever taught. And, um, you know, Jesus recommended his followers to grab a sword. And, I, and there are people that try to explain that away. But self-defense is and, – and violence in self-defense is biblical. It's, um, it's, it's you know, the idea of, of uh, letting your family be killed – in the name of pacifism, that's not a that's not a Christ-like idea. It's not a biblical idea. Um, so, yeah, I would I would I would be against it. Does that mean we go out looking for fights? No, of course not. Run if you can, escape if you can, do everything you can to avoid the violence. But it's just sometimes unavoidable. And that's that's not saying we celebrate violence. We don't. Far from it. But you know, two thousand years of or or whatever it is, sixteen hundred years of Christian just war theory, going back to Augustine. These these issues have been worked out. Yeah, definitely. There's lots. There's me, many barrels of ink spilled over this. Yes. Already. Yes. Um. Uh. All right. Uh. How much time you got left, Joel? Seven minutes. Seven minutes. Okay. Uh. Uh. Just quick. Uh. Someone DM me with a question. Before Joel has to go. <laughs> Let's see if we can come up with one. I, I turned on that at everyone. So if you want to try raising your hands, people, you can. Or just DM me. Oh, okay. Well, since this is the first one from Nicholas Etherington, we'll round it out with the classic. If Jesus is so loving and caring to everyone, why do non-believers get sent to hell? Okay. Yeah. Good question. Well, everyone goes, everyone who goes to hell goes there for their sin. And that is something that all of us deserve. 
there is no one who deserves to go to heaven who will not go there. Um, and the fact of the matter is, biblically speaking, no one deserves to go to heaven. And there's no one in hell who I believe is longing for an opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That desire to trust in Jesus Christ is a is itself a gift from God. Repentance itself is a gift. I believe that's what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Salvation by grace through faith is is a gift. So the question the implication is is God less loving because he sends people to hell? No. God is love definitionally. Um, a king is not unloving for for ordering the execution of a treasonous rebel who tried to nuke a city or something like that. And uh, you might say, well, I've never done anything that bad. Well, if you understand the holiness of God, um, you would understand that the argument, well, my sin's not that bad, is never going to fly. As a matter of fact, if you if you really understand the holiness of God, one of the signs that you understand the holiness of God is is uh, remorse over your sin because um, God is so holy and perfectly just that he must punish sin. He must punish sin. If he didn't, he wouldn't be a just God. He would be arbitrary. He'd be like the Muslim conception of God where there is no atonement necessary. God doesn't have to pay for sins. He just arbitrarily forgives some and, and doesn't forgive others. But the biblical concept of God, the true God, Yahweh, is holy and must punish sin. And if you don't like that idea, then I would I would say, well, then stop sinning. But of course, that's impossible because it's impossible for the the um, for anyone to to please God in our own efforts. Well, there's only one other alternative. Then you either have to be perfect or you have to have your sins paid for by the one who was perfect. And so that is what is offered to you. Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners like you, like me, and every single person that Jesus died for will be saved. The the angel, Gabriel, who came to Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents, Joseph was his adoptive parent uh, because he didn't have an earthly father. But the angel told Joseph, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so there's not going to be one drop of Jesus' blood that is ultimately wasted. He will save all his people from their sins. The question is, are you one of his people? Well, how do you know? Well, have you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ and received his incredibly loving gift? Because there's not a single one of us that deserves it. There's no one who can lay claim on God's mercy outside of Jesus Christ, because to reject Jesus is to shake your fist at God. And that is the attitude of, of hell. It's shaking your fist at God and saying, I don't want your holiness. I want you to accept my sin. And God can't accept your sin. He has to pay for it. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. That's the only way any of us gets out of this thing alive, is if we are covered by Jesus, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Metaphorically speaking, I don't mean literally, obviously, but if if we trust in Jesus, God credits His righteousness to us and our sin to Him on the cross. Well, Jesus died, as you know; 
He was buried. He rose again. That meant that the penalty had been paid because the wages of sin is death. So the fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that the penalty was paid once and for all forever. So I would really, really invite you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and experience the love of God experientially, uh, firsthand. It's it's unbelievable. It's incredible. It's just, man, knowing God personally is the greatest experience and adventure you can ever hope to have in life. Jesus literally said, this is eternal life, that they may know God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent. And that's true. You can experience eternal life right now. I, I want that for you. I invite you to repent today, now, and trust in Jesus. Don't wait. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of the Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support the Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute/partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think. Music